0: Hello, I'm Sans. And I'm Bells. And welcome
1: back to the BS degrees.
0: Da 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it doesn't get any less corny. Um The story starts in a year that shall not be named when a person named Bells goes to college and decides to do a pre med degree and um takes her first calculus class and is really mediocre at it. <laughs> and um, like many other students at the school that she went to, she felt that mediocrity was really, really um, embarrassing and humiliating and painful. And eventually decided that because of that, pre med was not the path for her. And it was. <laughs> it's so embarrassing to look back at that, to think that one class defeated you. Right. Um, and it's not even a situation where I failed the class. I was just mediocre. I was a B or a C and they were just people who got it faster or people who, you know, I, I think back then I thought, Oh, I'm so stupid. You know, what is wrong with me that I can't understand calculus? Um, And I knew that many of my classmates had taken calculus before. Some of them had taken it at 16 in high school. But for some reason, that didn't register with me. And I just felt that I was the only person who didn't understand calculus. And therefore, I was deficient. And I wasn't cut out for medicine. So I quit. And, you know, fast forward however many years. And I don't regret where I am now. But sometimes I do look back and I think, You know, what was the cost of giving up that early? And in a sense, I'm pretty sure that I gave up too early. Um, And the reason I gave up so early is because I was kind of putting weight on the wrong things. I was overly weighting my difficulty with understanding material, and I was not weighting heavily enough the fact that other people had had a lot of experience with this subject before. I mean, think about it you're in a lecture of a hundred students and that's the first exposure you get to this material. You only get time to practice on your own. Um, You have a recitation that is kind of ineffectual and you don't understand the material and you have to go find a tutor by yourself. And for somebody who's never needed a tutor, who was always a tutor to someone else, that was really hard for me. Um, And so I don't think, I gave myself enough credit for being kind of behind the pack. And that's really what today is about. Today is about all of the sort of invisible experiences that people have that um, assist them in getting where they are and how for those folks who don't have those invisible experiences and advantages, it can really appear like they themselves just don't get it or just aren't cut out for it or just don't have enough um and then they drop out of the race early and the whole point of today is to really talk about and unpack what's going on there and why it can be premature so that's it in a nutshell some sad tears for my sad younger self
1: (laughs) To add a little bit more to your story as well, and set the tone for what we're going to discuss, Um, I felt a great, I guess, analogy for uh, the situation um, is one of those pictures which, you know, definitely went through my social media a while ago as one of those viral memes. Um, A picture of three people standing looking at some sports game over a fence. One of them really tall, one of them short, and one of them probably like a kid. And uh, the picture of each one of them getting one box uh, to stand to look over the fence, which was, I believe, equality. And uh, with that situation, only the two taller individuals were able to actually see over the fence. The kid is still staring at wooden panels versus the situation where they distribute the boxes such that the tallest person gets none. The one who's slightly shorter gets one, and then the kid gets two boxes and they are all able to see over the fence. And that is Mm. labeled equity. Um, That's really what we're gonna try and decompose because I think at the most obvious, most egregious levels where this um, comes to bear in society, we might be able to recognize it. But when it comes to the subtleties, we often ignore it and we mistake um, essentially pre-invested effort And pre-invested effort sometimes, you know, lines up pretty well with privilege. So we mistake privilege for talent. And that happens a lot. And in addition to it not being truly very fair, um, you know, although I think plenty of discussions in the base can be and will be had about what is fair, um, there's also the issue that that perception and the acceptance of that story on a societal level really hurts individuals who have not had privilege, but mistake it for themselves not having talent. Right. Yes,
0: and I I think you articulated that beautifully and spot on. And I think one of the ways in which that myth gets perpetuated and that is kind of the mechanism or the cog by which it turns is what psychology and other fields would call an entity or a fixed view of talent and intelligence and ability versus a sort of incremental or growth perspective. And I think for many of us, well, you know, I don't want to make assumptions. I think many of everybody grows up in a different household and gets given different messages about what it takes to succeed. Um, and succeed is in quotations because the very idea of success and what that looks like can be very culturally and socially informed. But I think if there's sort of a, what we'll call a mainstream idea of success, which in this case, I think is maybe easy to define as getting into an elite university. um, And I don't know, after that, I guess getting a six-figure job or something like that, something very, you know, that everybody sort of guns towards when they're at an elite school. that, I think what happens sometimes is a lot of messages float around of, oh, I'm just not good enough or, oh, I am can't stack up. and And I think nowhere is it more insidious than on the campus of an elite school. You know, everybody is a valedictorian. Everybody worked hard to be there. So when you subtract hard work and effort, what's left? Sheer talent. And I really think that that is part of the kind of breathless whisper that gets kind of trafficked around campus so-and-so has an iq of 150 and is in mensa so-and-so had a startup at 16 you know so-and-so has shaken hands with some you know there's so many and i think what we don't look at like you were getting at before sans is that so many opportunities kind of are lined up in order for somebody to be able to even have an extraordinary path like that. I mean, Bill Gates is a great example, right? He was on computers before anybody else was right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell, um, the tipping point, you know, that the sort of rule of thumb is 10,000 hours towards mastery, right? The Beatles played, dozens and dozens of live shows before they, you know, got to the point where they were considered sort of one of the best entertainment acts in the world. Before that, they were really bad. So I think um, that's part of the sort of, like you were saying, invisible architecture that underpins um, a lot of people's early, early precocious success. But the thing is when we, you know, get to an elite school, we don't see all of that, underneath we just see the tip of the iceberg and we internalize it and um that results in sort of our sense of oh we'll never be good enough right because we interpret it as oh they're just getting it on the first try whereas i'm stupid like i somebody has tried to explain integrals to me for like five times and i don't get it you know there must be something wrong with me or your classmate took it when they were in sophomore year of high school And, you know, now they're learning discrete math. So that's the stuff that you don't see. Um, And I think, you know, we can go into the reasons why it's so hard to see those things. But anyway, I'll punt it back to you.
1: Thanks. I would argue that it's not just we don't see, but it's that we refuse to see. And that's, I think, why I am really riled up about this topic and why I think it's really important to um, really dig deep on it, right? Because we spend 40 minutes sometimes talking about something, and we kind of have already laid out our thesis and hypothesis, and we're only 10 minutes in. So you might wonder, why do I want to beat a dead horse? And I want to beat a dead horse because there is a certain level of willful ignorance on campuses that feeds into the kind of negativity and judgment of others, which I find uh, really just unproductive and also distressing. Um, because quite frankly, if you are the kind of person who needs to put other people in, down in order to feel better about yourself, you are the one with a problem and you should go talk to someone about it. Um, I just feel that this narrative, this little piece of the puzzle, which we insidiously accept that I didn't think about myself, that I didn't catch myself thinking about quite early enough is a huge part of the problem, right? Um, So when we talked about this um, and really tried to dissect it on our own um, before we started figuring out where we wanted to go with this episode, it hit me like a truck we ignore these problems and avoid actually facing up to the fact that, you know, we might be up ahead on the curve because we're privileged, not because we worked harder or deserved it any better than other classmates. And mm. these bring in students who have had very little privilege and then often, you know, unless they have the kind of emotional support it takes to rise above this, it crushes them because everyone walks around them like they're avoid you know sorry for the rude word but like they're stupid because and like they don't deserve you know what other people have because they didn't start out with the same privileges and that is just really offensive to me (laughs) and it's what gets to me.
0: If I may that really just hit me in the heart right because for me and you said so many things right now that I want to respond to but the first thing is really that you know I I've been luckier than other people, speaking of privilege, right? At the same time, I, I didn't come from much. And I think, you know, going to a school like this, there sometimes is a sense that, um, you know, what did I do to deserve to be here, right? And we've talked about this in previous episodes, right? That we should be so grateful to get this opportunity. And I think it especially is hard for working class and lower class students, because there's definitely this feeling of, I never thought I would be able to make it here. Nobody in my family has ever gotten in here. And I think, you know, if you've had a family member who's gone to an elite school before, it's not that there isn't pressure there. It's a different kind of pressure. Um, but if you're the first one in your family to go to, you know, college, let alone an Ivy League or, or one of the other public Ivies or little Ivies or whatever the names are, um, there's sort of an added element of like, you're the proof of concept. You know, your, your metal is tested there, you know, am I gonna be able to cut it? Do I deserve, like, am I gonna be able to prove that I deserve to stand here? And the really interesting thing, circling back to equality and equity, you know, I'm sure many people can debate us on this, but here's one interpretation I'll offer. When you, you know, not going into a discussion about affirmative action or anything else, when you get into an elite school, as somebody who comes from relative disadvantage, that's sort of an equality thing, right? But whether or not you have the experiences that can help you start at the same starting line as everybody else is an equity issue, right? So you have equality of opportunity, but is it really an equitable experience that you're having? I think is the crux of what you've been getting at, if I'm not wrong. And so I think the way, you know, I'm not going to debate you at all on what you just said, because I'm on the same page as you. Like this is our shared thesis, right? Um, That there's privilege and there's invisible privilege. I think what I wanna add is sort of contextual piece too that um, the Protestant work ethic underpins so much of American society. And it's an extremely individualistic way of looking at somebody's effort and talent. And so if you are not cutting it, then probably you're not working hard enough or you don't deserve it or you're lazy right? And you're squandering the opportunity that was given to you. And so I think for students who come from relative disadvantage to go to a school and feel like they aren't stacking up next to their more advantaged peers, but that advantage is kind of invisible to them. um, It must be so easy, like you said, to feel just inferior inherently, you know? And also if you come from a background where you didn't get a lot of, summer camps and test prep courses and extracurriculars and this, that, and the other thing. You don't even know how to look for that, the markers of class and status. So all of that just flies over your head, whereas somebody else might be able to look at somebody of a similar sort of laterally, the same social class and be like, oh, you know, they went to summer camp five times in a row and did an intensive language course overseas and you know all the sort of things where you're like okay so that's why they're so good at what they do but if you don't come from that then you don't know that and all you see is a genius anyway
1: yeah I think that's a I appreciate that because I was looking at it from the other side and while you were explaining this perspective it came to me that no matter which side of the socioeconomic divides you come from, unless you have the experience and the knowledge of knowing significantly what it is like on any other side, you're likely to misinterpret in one way or another. So what you described was the misinterpretation you're likely to make if you don't know what it's like to have all of, you know, a whole family's resources put behind you growing up. I think... When we were last speaking about this we described it particularly within our own experiences as part of Chinese culture and Asian perhaps culture in general where we recognize the importance of that privilege and investment so much that a lot of parents will do everything they possibly can to give their children the chance to focus on nothing but education um and you know without seeing that or knowing that life could be like that how can you possibly imagine how much more lucky or ahead of the curve your classmates are just because they grew up different right yes Um, understanding different experiences across the world and across life really make a huge difference um Um, I recently was reading Obama's memoirs, and I actually think that one serves, I think, a great deal for probably many Americans to learn about a completely different context of growing up. He also grew up in contexts where he had to cross cultural boundaries and come to those understandings himself. So he writes very wisely about them. Um, However, one thing that I think I would like to contribute to this conversation is the reverse perspective from what you just mentioned. You know, coming from the other side of growing up privileged, do you recognize what kind of privilege you have? And if you haven't seen what it's like growing up without it, you might not have any idea either. You might actually accept the story within yourself or the story that, you know, I don't think anyone ever articulated this to me, but... I would just assume, oh, there's just everyone's good at some things and not so good at other things. And my classmate is probably doing poorly because they're just not so good at it. It's easier to accept that, than to say I'm doing better than this classmate because I'm, I was more privileged. I think that's just harder for some people to swallow. Um, and I would like to actually contribute an example to this conversation to show what the nuances of privilege are within a within a generally privileged population and what i mean by that is i think my story is similar to what you might find at elite schools um which is sort of the you know the topic of our conversation um but it's it's this gray zone where like you mentioned before everyone who walks into this institution is considered lucky and privileged anyways so how can you what's the point of parsing privilege within that Maybe in a broader societal sense, there's not so much of a point, but for the people who are affected by it, there definitely is a point. Um, so I like, I'd like to contribute the story, if you don't mind. Just please to bring deep, deeper context. Um, so just for context, I guess I'm the kind of person who likes spoilers. Um, the person who I'm going to speak about, uh, a classmate and friend of mine is perfectly fine, doing great and uh, pretty happy in their life today. So not to worry, Um, but uh, this is a classmate who I grew up with. I went to an international school, which is an environment full of very privileged kids whose parents can afford really high tuition to send their kids to uh, a school where uh, pretty much within any country, expatriates will send their kids. If you think about what kind of population that is, that is really well-paid corporate people and diplomats. Um, going to that kind of school, um, you almost get lulled into, particularly as a child, if you're not extremely thoughtful, and I will openly admit that, you know, I wasn't deeply thoughtful about these kinds of things as a child.
0: Oh my gosh, (laughs) say it isn't so. (laughs) Um,
1: Everyone kind of comes in, well, almost everyone comes in with a very similar socioeconomic background, right? If your dad's an ambassador um, or your dad works in corporate, you're going to be what, quoting Crazy Rich Asians, comfortable. <laughs> and, and the when you are used to that kind of an environment, I guess you start to make differences like, well, we're comfortable, but the ambassadors are more comfortable. In a way, it's like they have money and they have power. So yeah, it's like weird you start to look at yourself as like, oh, we're like special, but we're not that special. It's totally okay. We're quote unquote normal. And um, that definitely um, is a huge thing. Um, That's definitely something my family did. And I guess it probably contributed to us turning out okay. Relatively speaking, there was this tiny population in this international school that these kids, you know, they never openly talked about it, whether it is because they were avoiding it or because... It just didn't come up, probably the second, you know, I can't confirm. But these kids would be the kids who somehow turned up in international school, even though, quote unquote, they weren't supposed to. Um, In effect, most of these were teachers' kids. You know, teachers at the school automatically would get kids coming to school for free. They wouldn't have to pay the ridiculously expensive tuition. And teachers' kids definitely didn't come from family backgrounds where they were so comfortable that they could go and you know spend the same way that these other kids could um i made friends with a lot of them actually i think in part it is because of the way that you know my family focused on normalcy um coming from china back in the very early years um my parents definitely lived through some really rough times and then were sort of starving students in europe for a while so they wanted to make sure and they would tell us all of these stories to let us know just how lucky we were. Stories that went along the lines of when I was a child, I didn't have textbooks. When I was a child, we didn't have, you know, X meals to eat. When I was a child, and when when you get that put into context, you know, it raises you to recognize I'm lucky. But yes, didn't quite, we didn't quite get to, you know, I don't think they spoke this to us a lot. So I never fully recognized the difference of, when I was a child, I had to raise my three siblings. When I was a child, I cooked and cleaned for the family because my mom was out working. When I was a child, I didn't have parents who understood mathematics to teach me. Those were actually the biggest privileges that I think compared to my mother, I earned. And over the course of these school years, Um, You know, I saw certain classmates would go their different ways. We all graduated. We went off to do different things. I pursued a STEM field and I went into corporate, I'll admit it, Um, and one of my close friends I would catch up with uh, every so often and they went into the arts. This friend of mine in high school or sorry, in middle school was extremely um, adept at mathematics and we would both Um, together with another smaller group, sit outside of the classroom to do extra, like higher level, I guess, exercises, because we'd outpace the class, and the teacher had to give us separate things to do. Then in high school, somehow, mathematics sort of dropped off of their radar, and um, they went to pursue something that was completely different from it. And then years and years later, I started to notice a pattern. Every time we met up, this classmate uh, would mention somehow, somewhere along the train of conversation, somewhere in looking back along the train of nostalgia that we would always take together, would come up this topic of, you know, I really enjoyed mathematics in middle school. Then we went into high school and we had this teacher who just couldn't explain mathematics to me, whose teaching style wasn't in line with mine. And... I didn't do well at the time. And I guess I just sort of assumed that I wasn't any good at maths, so I dropped it. But I don't think that I'm actually not good at maths. And I would jump in at that point in time and I'd assure them, no, no, I don't think it's cause you're not good at maths. I think it's cause that teacher wasn't good at explaining things to you. And then we'd move on. And then in following years that would come up and up again. And eventually, when having this analysis and conversation with you Bells, I realized this person got really hung up on this idea that they gave up on themselves and that they thought they weren't good at something because they weren't able to do well in this one class. And when I thought about it a little more, I realized they were one of the students in the school who were a teacher's kid their parents amazing parents as they were none of them were maths teachers you know um, from a cultural background of who they were none of those parents would have done what my parents did in terms of force them to like study two semesters ahead and learn material so that they could go into the classroom vaguely knowing what questions they needed to resolve For that student, the first time they hit a major hitch in mathematics and no one could explain it to them, that was it. They gave up. They decided they weren't as talented as me. Well, for me, my parents made sure I did extra work every single summer. And my grandpa was a mathematics teacher in university. Not to say that he told me, we had some language barrier issues there, but you know, the focus is different when the background in your family establishes that. And it, it so much reminded me of the story you told me about yourself that I realized I totally, I didn't think over it twice. It never occurred to me that, you know, they had, this had happened to them just because they didn't have the same background as me and they clearly still regretted it. And I think that's why, um, when we went through this, I realized privilege is so subtle, particularly when you all live together in an environment where it's more comfortable for everyone to pretend that we're all equal, that we'll just put down our differences to talent as opposed to inequality
0: or inequity, let's say. I think what you said just now of sort of they gave up on themselves is really resonant. Um, I think that's really the punchline here of, you know, and and I don't want to say it's as simple as don't give up on yourself, because I think we want to, you know, give space for if you really give something a good old college try, and you decide that you don't want to do it, you know, I think We were talking yesterday and I, you know, mentioned that at the end of the day, I don't regret not being a medical doctor because there are other things about the field that later on in life, I learned about and decided I didn't want to be a part of. And I think that's completely legitimate. If you gain an experience in a field and you decide it's not for you, then I think that's a very legitimate reason to not pursue it. And also you know, that nothing is ever set in stone. People change careers on average five, I think it's five to seven times in a lifetime. You know, that's careers, not, not just jobs. And, you know, even now the idea of a single career path is such an antiquated notion. I think, you know, it's even better to just talk about work in general, right? Because we're not all going to be working some kind of job with an avenue for promotion. Some of us are going to be working at Walmart or Target or McDonald's, and that is a legitimate and necessary step as well. So putting that discussion aside, I think when you have something and you feel that you're not good enough for it, and that is clouding your ability to accurately judge whether or not you actually want to be in the field, I think those are the occasions where, you know, we exhort you. Do not give up on yourself. And I think that is what your friend did. That's what I did. Um, and, you know, whether you want to talk it up to family culture or some other culture, um, I think also there's an economic piece too. You know, I think for you, Sans, growing up, not with all of the economic privileges that a lot of your classmates had your parents kind of pulled double duty and made up for it on their own. For many other families whose children you went to school with, probably what your parents were doing for you, their tutors were doing for them. So um, I think, you know, your family is wonderful and determined in that respect. And I I don't know that they're the norm either. Right. Um, And so I think those things also make up part of that invisible architecture. And I think, so that's one exhortation, right? You know, don't give up on yourself. Um, And, you know, the idea that you started at a, a, a starting line that was behind everybody else is not meant to be a piece of discouragement, rather a piece of validation to say, it's not you, the individual that isn't out for this. It's it's you embedded in the societal and cultural context in which you were born and raised. And that's not something you got to choose for yourself, right? The other thing I want to be clear in saying is that for folks who did grow up with privilege, whatever that looks like and how much there is, it's hard to quantify. I don't think that it's you know, necessary per se to castigate yourself for it, or at the same time to feel that there's sort of a delegitimization of your own efforts, right? You can work hard and also be very lucky. Those are not mutually exclusive. You can hold both at the same time. And I think oftentimes when we have a conversation about equality and equity, and we highlight privilege in a way that sort of like shining a UV light on it, um, what makes people uncomfortable is sort of this assumption that, oh, if you're privileged, everything that you personally did to work hard is just negated. And that's not true. Right. Um, I think it's not a zero. Really... Yes, it's not a zero thing. You know, many people who are very wealthy and very lucky work very hard, you know, and they don't take it for granted. Right. Um, and I think for example, sans, you are an excellent sort of, you know, example of that. You weren't the most fortunate person in your school environment. You were more fortunate than some, and you busted your butt to do what you needed to do and get where you are. So none of those things is untrue. Um, and I think we can acknowledge that, right? Um, Absolutely. I actually,
1: I think you totally drew the conclusions that I drew. So we are on the same page. Uh, we're done.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> to learn in this story for both of us. And from where I'm coming from, I would consider myself middle-class privileged, or as I'm going to distinguish two terms for facility right now, I consider myself um, grateful, privileged, The kind of person who is raised privileged, but also taught to understand that they were privileged in the process. Um, Then there's then another kind of privilege, which is the type that we tend to stereotype people as being privileged. And um, the kind that, you know, I would just respond to as like, don't be a (laughs) D-bag. I'm going to call them the arrogant privileged. you know. And this is going to have a hint of, you know what you recall as my green fresh to college voice but you know there is something much deeper to every person than just their performance and their grade and don't presume that people who perform less than you are just le- you know less gifted Don't presume such things and recognize that there are greater life experiences out there that if you only care to listen and get to know people would humble you to no small extent. And be curious and learn from that because sooner or later, life is going to get more complicated than the controlled little bubble of an environment that your privilege has afforded you. At least I hope it does. Otherwise, I guess you just don't live in the real world for the rest of your life, have fun. (laughs) But at some point, you will start to live in the real world and recognize that you don't get a five-year head start on everything when you start working. You don't get protected by the fact that your parents are there looking out for you, preparing you for every pothole that you're about to stumble on. So recognize when you're privileged recognize your luck continue to work hard and also learn respect and love those around you
0: I think the last note to what you just said your succinct conclusion is one I'm you know will own completely that I myself as somebody who didn't grow up with a whole lot um have a lot of upward classism at times right and so there are times when I will look at folks and make assumptions and sort of be like don't be a d-bag But that aside, you know, I I also acknowledge that having economic privilege doesn't mean that you aren't, you can't be oppressed in other ways and that you don't have struggles of your own. So that's one thing. Um, Another thing, sort of, that you had alluded to before with your anecdote about your friend is that um, it's so easy to not see what you don't see, right? And I think that's kind of the subtitle or byline of everything we said today. That, you know, hopefully, you know, if you grew up with privilege, you enter the world and, you know, being an intelligent, observant, humble person, you realize that you have privilege and, you know, maybe you get a reality check here and there and then you process and, you know, feel those emotions and feel the discomfort and the dissonance. I think what often happens, and I understand it because it's human nature, is that um, either people don't have those experiences or they have those experiences, and they say, "Oh no, that can't be true." And I hear this a lot. I think in the discourse around economic privilege of sort of, "Oh wow, people are you know not at whatever literacy level in the United States that can't be true. It must just because they're it must just be because they're not working hard enough. You know, it can't possibly be that they experience such egregious disadvantage that they can't." you know, get that level of education, right? Or, wow, somebody's living in abject poverty, or even most of our attitudes towards homeless folks who walk the streets, you know, uh, sort of like, oh, they must have done something to get themselves there, you know? Um, That kind of stigma against poverty, because to think that, oh, there were societal and political forces that landed these people here, through no fault of their own, is to completely undo our conception of a just world. And sort of, oh, because I'm successful, you know, there were things beyond my effort that got me here. You know, it's literally by the luck of the draw that I am here and not myself homeless, right? And that's a really ugly truth. And no one wants to acknowledge it, even though it's true. You know, so that's, Piece number two. And finally, piece number three um, is really sort of those are my sort of concluding thoughts for today. So, uh, you know, if we can sum up our theses, it's like, don't be a D bag. Um, <laughs> have compassion for yourself, but also have compassion for others. And if you're somebody who grew up with a lot, maybe, you know, Be open to the possibility that somebody next to you who is struggling is not less talented than you, but simply less lucky than you. And if you are the person who is struggling, have a lot of compassion for yourself and, you know, be open to the idea that the person next to you is not more talented than you, but maybe just has more than you. Because sometimes it can be hard to swallow that from the other side too. So that's all I have to say. I think you summarized it perfectly. I think that's it for us today.
1: So that's
0: our job is done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) At at least thus far. Yes. So thank you to our listeners. I hope we've contributed to some small extent and, you know, stay curious, stay smart and till next time. Signing off. Bye.